Iran's been a problem for so many years. If you go back, just take a look at all of the conflict that they've caused. And the deal that President Obama made was a horror show, the Iran nuclear deal, because basically it says that in five years from now, they're going to have an open path to making nuclear weapons. We don't need another country with that. And frankly, especially them. We don't need it. It's clear the president, if he were the governor of Alabama, wouldn't have signed that bill. Um, he's been, you know, really consistent. But would he stand up and fight it, I guess, is the question. Well, the polls say at least right now a long time to go, but that Joe Biden starts out as the front runner on the Democratic side. The single most important thing we have to accomplish is defeat Donald Trump. Hello, welcome to Trumpcast from Los Angeles, California. This is Leon Krause. My introduction for today's episode requires a very brief personal story. I grew up idolizing American democracy. American politics was, just slightly after soccer, my biggest passion. You could even say I have been a lifelong fan of American politics. When my friends in high school were out partying, I was watching Al Gore debate Ross Perot over NAFTA and then went out myself. I mean, I wasn't that crazy. I've been covering American elections for the last 25 years. For the most part, I follow the process from Mexico, although I made an almost religious pilgrimage to cover the party's conventions through the years. Distance, I like to believe, has given me perspective. And I truly don't think I've ever seen anything quite like what I've witnessed with the Democratic Party in the last couple of months. I am sure most Trumpcast listeners would agree that progressive America has never faced an adversary quite like Donald Trump. Although nativism is certainly not new and the country has had other nativist leaders throughout its history, Trump is in a class by himself. The same could be said of his brazen disregard for basic freedoms, his assault on the press, his shadiness, his racism, and his almost universal support of the most radical version of the conservative agenda. If Donald Trump wins re-election, the consequences would be long-lasting and severe. The Supreme Court would veer to the right, the fight against climate change would be irreversibly damaged, and God knows what Trump would do if a real crisis comes across his desk, like a terrorist attack, I knock on wood. So, objectively speaking, Donald Trump is a threat to liberal values, like no other in American history, or at least in modern American history. Given that fact, one would imagine that liberal pundits, and of course Democratic voters, would be focusing first and foremost on defeating Trump. Yes, defeating Trumpism within the Republican Party is important, but can it be done without first denying Trump a second term? I don't think so. And so we arrive at the current conundrum facing the Democratic Party. The party is in the process of choosing its nominee for next year's presidential election. There are, as of this week, 23 Democratic candidates. So many that the party will have to divide the group to make room for everyone once the debates begin in a few weeks. Curiously enough, though, there is one, one clear frontrunner in this group. And not just any frontrunner. Former Vice President Joe Biden has a 22-point lead over Senator Bernie Sanders. Count them. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22 points over Bernie Sanders. And a 31, I won't count up to 31, when a 31-point lead over Elizabeth Warren that is a much wider margin than the fabled advantage Hillary Clinton had over Barack Obama in May 2007. She had a 10-point lead over Obama at this same moment in that race. 
Not only that, Joe Biden beats Trump by eight points on average. And yet, despite these impressive numbers, Biden is under assault. Liberal pundits have not only tried to dismiss Biden, they have tried to convince him not to run at all. Some, and I count myself among them, would call this suicidal, self-defeating. At least how things stand now, 18 months away from Election Day. We have a wonderful guest to talk about Biden and the Democrats, my Slate colleague, Jim Newell. But first, the tweets. Hard to believe that Fox News is wasting airtime on Mayor Pete. As Chris Wallace likes to call him, Fox is moving more and more to the losing wrong side in covering the Dems. They got dumped from the Democrats' boring debates, and they just won in. They forgot the people who got them there. Chris Wallace said, I actually think, whether you like his opinions or not, that Mayor Pete has a lot of substance. Fascinating biography. Gee, he never speaks well of me. I like Mike Wallace better, and Alfred E. Newman will never be president. False reporting yesterday. There are no plans to send migrants to northern or coastal border facilities, including Florida. Fox News, not by airplanes or any other way. Our country is full. Will not and cannot take you in. Never a fan of Justin Amash, a total lightweight who opposes me and some of our great Republican ideas and policies just for the sake of getting his name out there through controversy. If he actually read the biased Mueller report composed by 18 angry Democrats who hated Trump, he would see that it was nevertheless strong on no collusion and ultimately no obstruction. Anyway, how do you obstruct when there is no crime? And in fact, the crimes were committed by the other side. Justin is a loser who sadly plays right into our opponent's hands. My colleague Jim Newell is a political reporter for Slate. Jim, welcome to our Trumpcast. Hey, good to be here. Let me begin by setting the scene inside the Democratic Party. I referred to it slightly during the intro, but let me get back to it for a second. On paper, one would think that the Democrats could not be in a better position to unseat Donald Trump next year. While the country's economy is growing, we all know that Trump is an unpopular president. The Democratic lineup couldn't be better. The 20-plus Democrats are honestly a truly remarkable group of voices that if united, one would imagine they could appeal to virtually every segment of the American electorate. And yet the party could be heading towards an even more potentially divisive fight than what we saw in 2016. Do you agree? And how do you explain it? Yeah, I think to oversimplify it as much as possible, there are two pretty big factions and theories of the election within the Democratic Party. There is a an ascendant progressive base that finally sees the party moving a little bit further to the left on some issues and thinks that this election is the vehicle for progressives to really take off. 
But then there's another segment of the party that just really wants to beat Trump, isn't overly concerned with the boldest policy proposals, and is going to look for someone who's very electable right now. And I think that you've seen progressives surprised by how well Biden has done since he launched his campaign and sort of underestimated just how many people within the party just wanted to go with the safest possible choice who they see as Joe Biden, even though Biden is supposedly out of touch with where the party is headed. Let's talk about Biden. His arrival on the scene was met with almost, like you say, almost universal rejection among liberal pundits who dismissed Biden as an emissary of the past, an old hand with too much baggage, a man who could not represent the Democratic Party's future. It was really a tsunami of rejection. His lead, many argued, would then evaporate. And yet here we are with Biden holding a 20-point lead, 20 points over Bernie Sanders. Some people say it's even larger than that, the margin. An eight-point margin on Trump in a potential matchup. That, by the way, is a 14-point swing from what Obama had over Romney in May of 2011. So what's making Biden such a formidable candidate, at least at the moment? So right now, it really does seem to be the perception that he is the most electable. He is safe, competent, can sort of return the country to a normal state of things. Won't be a wild card if he gets into a general election matchup with Trump. One thing that's really interesting, there have been some polls showing that Biden, even though he's not the preferred candidate on policy, people are selecting him anyway. So there was a Quinnipiac national poll uh, a couple weeks ago. Only 23% of respondents said that Biden had the best policy ideas but 38% said they would vote for him anyway. So you can see clearly, even if people might think he's not with the times on policy, they're still going for him because they just view him as the safest option. So in a way, and I don't know whether this is healthy or not, but the voters are almost themselves playing pundit here, you know, just sort of sizing the guy up Mm -hmm. and thinking that he would be the best one-on-one with Trump. And that's a fascinating question, the question surrounding Biden and the rest of the candidates, this debate about electability. Some argue that given Biden's numbers, he remains the most electable candidate among the Democrats, like you say. Others point out that Biden's electability is actually a myth, especially this early in the game, that he's gaff-prone, that he has this long history. What do you think? Do you think Biden is objectively the most electable Democrat in the race? I guess there's a couple different ways to look at electability. I mean, Biden is the safest if you think that there's a big center there that doesn't like Trump and that they could go to Joe Biden, you know, if he could occupy the center. On the other hand, you know, who's he going to fire up in the base? Who is he really going to make excited and get young people out there volunteering and and trying to fire up everyone around them to, to vote for Joe Biden? So, I mean, that's the case that Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, who are sort of the more leftward candidates, are trying to make that Biden, you actually need to bring in new voters and you really need to have energy because it's going to be a base versus base situation. There's no objective definition of electability. There are just different theories of it. The only thing that matters is perceived electability. And right now, people are buying the Biden case where you take over the center and that's your best chance of winning over the Sanders Warren case where you need to fire up the base. Some people would say that it's a matter of narratives, right? Before Biden entered the race, some people thought that this progressive narrative, this revolution narrative would be more attractive to voters than the restoration narrative that Biden embodies. Have those people been proven wrong? Well, there is a lot of time left. So we'll see so far some of Biden's more controversial votes from the past when he was a little more conservative and when the Democratic Party was a little more conservative. 
those haven't really grazed people yet. Maybe if someone attacks them with it during a debate or something, and then that dominates a week's worth of coverage or something, then maybe that will wound him a little bit more. But I do think there was some idea in the pundits that what's happening in the Democratic Party now would resemble what happened in the Republican Party during the Obama presidency, where they just rapidly moved to the right. Mm -hmm. But the numbers don't really bear that out right now. Even though the Democratic Party is moving to the left, there was a Pew study in January that showed a majority of Democratic and Democratic-leaning voters want their party to move in a more moderate direction. Mm -hmm. Whereas Republicans, who are more conservative than Democrats are liberal to begin with, still want their party to move in a more conservative direction. So even though you've seen some drift from Democrats to the left, there's already a backlash to that that's serious within the Democratic Party, and that's fertile ground for a Joe Biden candidacy. Yeah, I mean, 56% of Democratic voters identify themselves as moderates. So let me ask you this basic question with which I sort of opened in the introduction. Why would liberal voices in America at the moment turn their backs so dramatically on the man who, at least according to the polls, to the numbers that we are sharing here today in Trumpcast, has objectively the best chance of beating the man who is, without a doubt, the most reviled Republican president of the modern era. I've been thinking of progressive voices, even our colleagues, whom I deeply respect, and they have been brutal against Biden, <laughs> yeah. even before he launched his candidacy. So, Jim, how can we explain it if he objectively has this gigantic lead over the rest of the field, and honestly, quite an incredible margin over Trump himself, even in battleground states like Pennsylvania? How can we explain it? I mean, one, just liberals and the further left just want a more liberal candidate than Joe Biden to begin with. And they also believe that Trump is going to be pretty vulnerable no matter who goes up against him. And I think maybe that's the split. Lefties and progressives might see a beatable Trump and think, well, anyone can beat him. We should get someone who has the best policies, the most progressive policies in there to go against him. Others look and say Trump's beatable. We need to make sure we get someone very safe in there so that we don't blow this opportunity. It's amazing how people can look at the same situation and draw completely different conclusions about it. But we'll see how it turns out. Although I'm looking at the latest polls, and these are polls from Fox News, by the way, that show that Biden has currently, this week, an 11-point lead over Trump. Bernie Sanders, five points. Elizabeth Warren, just two points, so well within the margin of error. A tie with Kamala Harris. Mayor Pete, who excites so many people, would lose against Trump by one point. So the margin with Biden is quite remarkable. Now, you've written in Slate, actually, that before Biden's arrival, Jim, most candidates were trying very hard to gain the support of the party's super progressive wing. And it was actually quite amusing to see, dreaming of an Ocasio-Cortez endorsement. And now the emphasis seems to be on opposing Trump and perhaps appealing to the party's moderates. Do you think that liberal voices have overestimated the current appeal of the super progressive agenda of this ascendant progressive base that you've described for us today among the majority of Democratic voters? Have we overestimated the appeal of figures like Ocasio-Cortez at the ground level when it comes to the Democratic base? Yeah, I think both some of us in the media, as well as the candidates themselves, have overestimated just how potent this progressive wing of the party really was. The piece I wrote sort of riffed on a New York Times report that Kamala Harris, after spending all this time sort of downplaying her prosecutor record for fear that progressives would make hay of it and for, you know, supporting Medicare for all, has sort of realized, oh, that's actually not that lucrative <laughs> of, of a space. And now she's sort of moving to the center and 
and talking about a prosecutor record and trying to take on Trump directly. And I suspect we'll see more of that after showing what Biden has shown about how much space there is for a more moderate candidate. But I think it could be reflected in the disproportionate coverage of the House. You mentioned Ocasio-Cortez. She gets so much of the coverage of new House Democrats, but the 43 Democrats who flipped districts that were Republicans into Democrat districts, Mm -hmm. they're all very moderate. So it may just be Ocasio-Cortez and some other very progressive new members and new voices in the party. They're important in that they show that Democrats are expanding what's possible, but they're also not making up the bulk of the new members. And I think maybe that's gotten missed in some of the overheated coverage of them. You made me think of something Jonathan Chait wrote recently. He argued that while the left has certainly made inroads in recent years and has played a very important role in the discussion, the public debate, the media has played a crucial role in sort of overhyping the real potential, at least currently, of this version of the left within the Democratic Party. I mean, like you say, Ocasio-Cortez is an important figure, a great character, but the fact remains that those 40-plus seats the Democrats gained last year came mostly from moderate or Republican-leaning districts. Do you think we, in the media, have neglected the real story, this real story being how these Democrats actually flipped Republican districts or came from moderate districts? Have we neglected the real story because we had these other very attractive characters there in the mix? Yeah, I think so, to a certain extent. I mean, I personally tried to sort of balance things out and not just write every story about Ocasio-Cortez, but these things sort of take on a life of their (laughs) own. You know, you have someone who is a very compelling, charismatic new figure with a new politics that we hadn't really seen before in Congress with Ocasio-Cortez. And then on the other side, Republicans and Fox News and that whole media ecosystem, they find her as, you know, very damaging to Democrats broadly because she's so far left. So then they amplify all their coverage of what's going on in democratic politics to her. And then the conversation, you know, then becomes a response to what Fox News is doing. So it becomes this big, just endless debate about (laughs) Ocasio-Cortez that really has gone over the top. (laughs) So if that tinted people's impressions of what the broader Democratic Party was doing, then that's not great. And, you know, those of us who may have allowed some of that to show that the Democratic Party was moving too far to the left, to the extent that I have, that's not really an accurate portrayal of where they are. In any case, like you said, no matter what pundits think or us journalists write about, the fact is Democratic voters do seem to value, at least at the moment, electability over anything else, right? I mean, in a recent piece you say, and I quote, 68% of likely Democratic voters say they prefer to have a nominee who would be a strong candidate against Trump, even if they disagree with that candidate on most issues. And 56% of respondents said Biden has the best chance to beat Trump. Sanders was next with 12%. Right. 12%. It's, the, the difference is incredible. Yeah, it's just not even close right now. And that's why you're not going to beat Biden on policy alone. You know, you're not just going to say that you have better policies than him or whatever, because you're talking to different segments of the primary electorate. You have to prove that Biden is not electable, which is not an especially easy case right now. But that's sort of what's going to need to be done if Biden is going to be stopped. And could be suicidal, if I may say so, for the Democratic Party, since this man has, at least now, 18 months away, the best chance to beat Trump. I mean, we could be talking a similar scenario. I mean, let's imagine a situation in which two frontrunners emerge from the 20-something, I think it's 23 today, candidates that we have, Biden and Sanders, with Biden maintaining a slight but clear edge. Can you foresee a scenario in which Sanders' insistence could hurt Biden and help Trump in 2020? He sort of did that. I mean, with all due respect for the Bernie bros out there, he sort of did that with Hillary Clinton in 2016. Can you foresee a scenario like that this time around? 
If it comes down to Bernie Biden, you know, all the people who are sick of relitigating the 2016 primary between Bernie and Hillary, well, good news, you have something new. You now have Bernie versus Biden, which is going to be the exact same thing because they represent exact same wings of the Democratic Party. There are a couple of camps on this. I don't think that Bernie staying in so long cost Hillary the election. I think, you know, most Bernie supporters still came out and voted for Clinton. But it could be another just sort of ugly summer when you, you know, ahead of the convention, when you want to get the whole party corralled and Sanders maybe tries to angle for some sort of concession. But we'll see. I mean, with so many more candidates, it could be a race that has a whole different complexion. You know, it could be a three-way race with Biden, you know, on one end, the centrist end, Bernie on the most liberal end, and then someone like Kamala Harris sort of trying to run up the middle there. So, you know, it could not be the exact same replay of 2016. Let me go back a little bit and ask you about possible openings for other candidates. Right now, Biden seems like the giant in the race. He certainly not only seems like it, but seems to be really the giant in the race. Now, Sanders, Harris and others might have an opening with young voters who seem to be the only demographic that at least now doesn't clearly, clearly support Biden. Young voters might be the only opening they have. Yeah, I think that young voters still are Bernie Sanders' best case and, you know, someone else might be able to tap into some of that. But if you're going to beat someone like Joe Biden, you need to stitch a couple of different segments of the party together. Because right now, Biden is in a very good place in that he has really strong support among African-American voters and really strong support among white voters without a college degree. And those two segments make up a majority of the Democratic Party. So, you know, if you're Kamala Harris, you know, she's hoping to get a lot of African-American voters in her corner and then needs to find some other element of the party to stitch together with that. Mayor Pete, Pete Buttigieg, he right now is doing very well among white voters with a college degree, but terrible everywhere else. So it's going to be interesting to see if someone else can put together a coalition of a couple of different wings of the Democratic Party right now, because it seems like no one's having much luck with that besides Joe Biden. Biden has run, Jim, for the Democratic Party's nomination twice and has obviously failed both times quite miserably. We've established he is a clear frontrunner now. But let me wrap up by asking you this. How could a Biden candidacy fail? Give me the story of how he could lose this race. Well, the debates happen and everyone goes after Joe Biden because that's where all the votes are. They bring up some of his misconduct from the past, you know, whether it's authoring the crime bill in 94, which is really out of fashion right now, or his treatment of Anita Hill during those hearings or his support for the Iraq war. And they just peck at him until he gets just obliterated on that point of debate. And then, you know, other candidates in going after Biden just present themselves as really compelling figures. It's so early now, people haven't really gotten a look at too many of the candidates, you know, live and in the moment. So I think that's the way it's going to happen is just we'll see Biden under a lot of stress. We'll see everyone going after him. Suddenly, maybe a new figure, a Harris or a Buttigieg or Cory Booker, you know, someone really just has a viral moment. And suddenly people who were her investing in Biden just for safety start to feel comfortable with someone else. So what you're saying is that the rest of the Democratic candidates are going to have to go after Biden hard, going to have to bring down a man who currently, let's repeat that, currently has at least an eight-point lead over Donald Trump for the general election. 
right? They're going to have to go after him. I mean, they could start to overcalculate and think, well, if I'm Cory Booker, I need to go after Kamala Harris because I want to be, you know, the best positioned black candidate for South Carolina. And, you know, we'll let Joe Biden sort of fall on his own, which will happen naturally. That was sort of how Republicans went about it with Trump in 2016. You know, they all went after each other trying to find these specific lanes. And then Trump just sort of carried through. So they're going to go pretty hard after him, I think, because if they just bet that eventually his being out of touch with the party and all these other things they imagine will bring him down will happen on their own, then he's going to win the nomination. So I expect it's going to get pretty rocky for Joe Biden. Then we'll see how durable this huge polling lead is. Jim Newell is a political reporter for Slate. Jim, thank you so very much. Thank you, Leon. And that's our show for today. Tell us what you think. We are on Twitter. I'm at Leon Krause, K-R-A-U-Z-E. And the show is, of course, at Real Trumpcast. And before you go, please don't forget to sign up for Slate Plus. It's only $35 for the first year. You get all of Slate's podcasts ad-free, fun perks, and best of all, you will be supporting our work in these challenging times. And they will get even more challenging Go to slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus. That's slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus. Our show today was produced by Melissa Kaplan with help from Daniel Hewitt and Renee Pineda. John Di Domenico is our great voice of Donald J. Trump. Find him on Twitter at johnnyd23. I'm Leon Krause from Los Angeles, California. Oh, it's so sunny and beautiful here. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. Fox News is going totally liberal. Maybe they should be Fox MSNBC or Fox CNN because they are becoming fake news. Why would you have on Mayor Pete? He's a total nobody. He's a nothing. He's a mayor. Oh, my God. Mike Wallace is a left leaning socialist who shouldn't even be allowed on television. I am going to start my own news channel. It'll be Trump Information Television. How do you like that?